Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, g'day. Good to be with you here for Alan Jones, Jason Morrison, for just another week. Alan is back with you at the end of next week. So here we have another day, another batch of inflation figures. And I'm sure you don't need the Bureau of Statistics to tell you that prices are continuing to rise. In fact, I doubt they even need to go and do a survey. The statistics simply back up reality. The reality is that for the overwhelming bulk of middle Australia, we are in survival mode. No one has any spare money for luxuries. Expenditure has really, really slowed. Businesses are starting to go broke because they can't find customers. And for mortgage holders, another interest rate rise is coming. Melbourne Cup Day apparently will be brutal. But the farce of the situation is there seems to be very little, if anything, any of us can do to stop inflation, especially when it's government that keeps pushing it along. Here are the notes, here's the details. A rapid rise in petrol prices, rents and electricity bills are driving a re-acceleration in inflation of the September quarter. Okay, let's break this down. Petrol, rents and power. Every one of those has been kicked along in some way by the stupidity, the unworldliness of people in government right at the top. So let's break it down. Rents, rents. What can you do? What can you do if your rent goes up? Can you pack up and move to another place? I guess you could. But good luck finding somewhere else. There is not a thing you can do. Owners put up because their costs are rising. Rents are rising because rates are rising. And the aggravation of the situation is competition in the market for rental has gone crazy because vacancies are at an all-time low. And why is that? Well, look at this graph. Have a close look. Half a million extra people into the country in the last year. There is your clue, that red line. Have a look how steeply that climbs. That started pretty much the day that Albo came to power. That is extraordinary. And look at the last 20 years and look at the numbers. They're breaking records. When Australia can least of all afford it, and least of all wants it, Albanese and the gang give us record immigration. Too many people, too quickly, and we haven't even started the discussion about who we are bringing to the country and how suitable they are as migrants for our peaceful harmony in Australia. We'll talk more about that shortly. Look, the government's number one priority should be the protection and well-being of people who are already here. And on that front, they are failing yet again. So back to the rising cost list, let's go to petrol. Petrol is an international price dilemma. There's not a hell of a lot, really, that we can do about the prices coming in from overseas. Here's a reminder, that's May to where roughly we are now, how prices have travelled in the last few months. That's US dollars, but that's Australian petrol prices. Up and up and up and up. And I guess we could drive less, but let's be real here for a moment. There is not much little Australia can do about world oil prices. But we can control how much tax the government chucks into the petrol price mix. It's a huge earner and a massive bonus for the federal government because as prices go up, 
So does tax. Have a look at this. This is an ACCC graphic from a few years ago. You won't find them doing one of these again. This is them telling the truth about your petrol prices. Look at the chunk in green, the huge price per litre you're paying just in taxation, government tax. Every litre of fuel you stick in the car, you pay about 50 cents for the privilege, plus GST, plus all these other little hidden charges that are in there and environment levies, all thrown in. And the excise, the tax, goes up twice a year. You have this bizarre situation where government puts up the tax twice a year and it gets a bonus in GST twice a year. So government helps inflate the price of petrol. They just kick it along. Albanese and Treasurer Jim Car 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 Chalmers, beg your pardon, should be Chalmers, could immediately say cut 20 cents a litre off fuel with a stroke of a pen. They would barely notice the difference. But we would, we'd notice it, 20 cents a litre cut in fuel. In fact, the Morrison government did it during COVID as a stimulus to get things going. Stroke of a pen, many billions back to the community. The government would just have to earn a little bit less. They could do it, but they won't because they're drunk on the cash. And where do you start with power bills, the third pillar of rising costs in Australia? Labor's useful idiot, Chris Bowen. He keeps finding ways to make power more expensive and at the same time ignoring our enormous competitive advantage of cheap, reliable coal that the rest of the world can't get enough of. Bowen wants nothing of it. Have a look at this. You know it. Prices are skyrocketing. This is Reserve Bank analysis. Just have a look at that screen. 2022 is in the middle of that graph. Look at the rise in power. And what did they say today, the ABS? A big driver is an increase in power bills. There is nothing you can do about that. I mean, well, actually, that's a lie. Sorry, there is. You can switch everything off. That's about it. There's nothing you can do to pre prevent that. And, you know, you, like me, you live in fear of the next power bill. The government is causing this. Bowen is causing this. Helped along by vanity projects for carbon commitments and windmills here and windmills there. The government is causing this. Now, these people are vandals and you are the one paying to clean it up. It's tough enough in this country. These people just add to the problem at every turn. On every front, they could be helping make life easier. They're doing the opposite. I tell you what, they weren't wrong when they said it won't be easy under Albanese. It's certainly not. The tragedy of the situation in Israel and the unfolding war is bad enough, but it's exposing a very frightening underbelly of deep-seated hatreds here in Australia. As one Jewish friend that I've known for a long time, she's got young children, she commented to me just the other day, she has never felt frightened to be in Australia but now she does. The horrors of the terrorist attack on Jews in Israel and the response against Hamas might well be a world away, but for many, it is very real and very here. And some of what we are seeing in Sydney and Melbourne, particularly, frankly, is not the Australia we know. Take this morning, the news in the Daily Telegraph that a Southwest Sydney council is going to fly the Palestinian flag as an act of solidarity and support. I ask the question, why? Why is the Labor-dominated council 
putting the flag up ironically over Paul Keating Park in the heart of Bankstown and on major council buildings, why are they doing it? They say until a ceasefire is declared. Why is the council taking sides? People can take sides if they want. People can have a belief in what they like. But council should not. And the local councillor at the heart of this, Carl Selle, is quoted as saying, of course, of course, there's no place for anti-Semitism or Islamophobia in our city. But, and there's always a but, let's not pretend that the Palestinians have only been suffering since the 7th of October this year. It's always the loaded phrase. Add to this the ugliness of chanting death to the Jews and gas the Jews at the Opera House a fortnight ago. And don't forget the so-called peaceful protests through the city at the weekend where mothers with young children are holding signs about the elimination of Jews from the river to the sea. It's ugly stuff. Then jump on board a train at Sydney at the weekend and some half-wit rail employee over the PA system is playing a pro-Palestinian propaganda song. Have a look at it. People are stunned. Whoever did that should be sacked. But I bet it doesn't happen. And the ABC never lets you down. They had a guest on Monday night wearing a scarf, an anti-Israel scarf, rightly upset the Jewish Board of Deputies. But again, why would we be shocked? The ABC can't help itself. This is not the Australia we know. We have with us today Dr David Adler. David has been president of the Australian Jewish Association since it started. He's a prominent figure. He doesn't hold back and nor should he. The Australian Jewish community cops enough here. David both represents and writes on political issues facing the Jewish community, and we have him at ADH often. He's with us. G'day. How are you, David? Nice to talk to you again. Uh, it's good to always join ADH, but the answer to the question, how are you, uh, if you want to an honest answer, uh, not the best. Uh, and I think that many in the uh, Jewish community are feeling less than okay. I said earlier of my example with a, a good close friend of mine, she says she feels frightened in Australia for the first time. That I mm. find that so sad. You, you shouldn't be frightened here. The ancient hatreds that are, are life for some people in other corners of the world should not exist here. But it almost feels like it's being pushed along, pushed along by the very people who actually should be resisting it and stopping it. Uh, look, it's been horrible. Um, we've been shocked at the reaction locally. Uh, it was our work that exposed what happened at the Opera House with the chanting of F the Jews and gas the Jews. Now, these are not political statements. These are not expressing a view about... Um, you know, what the borders should be in the Middle East or, um, you know, who should control uh, which parts. This is descended into obvious and ugly anti-Semitism. The gas the Jews is particularly awful because it's reminiscent of the Holocaust. That was how uh, millions of Jews were exterminated by the Nazis. Um, and you're right, we do have... Uh, elements in the Jewish community who uh, are scared. Uh, security has been increased in Jewish facilities and uh, we're taking precautions. 
And I guess there'll be people watching this saying, oh, but there's balance, there's gotta be balance, there's two sides to the story. I'm talking about what happens here in Australia. I'm not talking about what's happening over there. And frankly, nor are you. We're talking about threats to people living here. So, so I'm just curious, um, have you been made aware or are the police telling you or asking you to shut down your guys from threatening people of a Palestinian heritage? Well, we, we are in close contact with the authorities, uh, federal and state. Uh, the New South Wales Counter-Terrorism Police are in touch with us a lot. Um, we are not aware of any single uh, significant threat arising from the Jewish community uh, directed towards Muslims. Um, by contrast, we have received dozens of threats, many dozens of threats, and these are reported and investigated. There have been some arrests in Melbourne and Sydney as a result, but it does seem to be a one-way street. Back to my point, I think I said, this is not the Australia we know. 100%. I, I, I'm actually probably kidding myself a bit there because it's, it's not the Australia we want to know. It's the Australia that exists. I mean, the great big fantasy of multiculturalism and all of its wonderfulness and everything like that, you get the pointy end of it when things go down and they're going down right now. Yeah, uh, look, what we're seeing in Australia, uh, not to take too much of a PC perspective, um, is what's seen with radical Islam in many places, not all Muslims by any means, but yeah. certainly a significant minority. And we've seen attacks directed against the Jewish community in the UK, uh, in Europe, uh, over a number of years. And of course, in the Middle East, uh, that really is the sharp end of it. Uh, the Hamas Charter uh, originally was not just about uh, trying to take land, it was about the extermination of Jews. And within the last week, um, both uh, Fatah, which is the Palestinian Authority, and Hamas have instructed their imams to quote uh, passages that call for the extermination of Jews. To see this in Australia uh, and some of the threats we've received um, is, is horrible. Uh, we don't want it. Uh, you know, leave the overseas disputes overseas. You can have a different worldview. You can have a different perspective on the politics but it's not appropriate as in a democratic society. And frankly, if you hold those views, you shouldn't be here. Yeah, um, we yeah. have a problem with our immigration policy. Don't we ever? Well, I say it often, there are Australians and there are people who just live here. And uh, boy, do we see it at times like this. We see people who are just kind of popping in because uh, you come to Australia, I hope, to remove yourself from all the horrors of other places and all the ugliness and tensions. You see, I think what's interesting about this discussion is we're not talking about what's going on. The world is talking about what's going on. We're not talking about the bombing. We're not talking about the terrorist attack. We're not talking about the possible ground war or whatever. We're talking about what's acceptable in this country. And this stuff is unacceptable and the behaviour is unacceptable, but just about nobody says it. I mean, I, I hear phrases, you know, calling for calm. The calling for calm is projected at all. 
it should be projected at some. It should be projected at the people who are not calm, the people who are hysterical and are doing these things in the street, lighting up flares and carrying on at the opera house and whatever else. And, and by the way, they're not all just, and the assumption will be, oh, they're all just Muslim. They're not. In fact, many of them are university halfwits who just jump on board the cause. This, the, the ugliness of all of this is that, you know, at the heart of it is some people just like to be seen to hate Jews. Anti-Semitism is a real problem. Uh, it's it's a whole nother subject. But when you're talking about what's happening here in Australia, one of the things that hasn't sunk through adequately yet in the general population uh, and at the political level is the reputational damage which has occurred to Australia and to Sydney. Mm. Um, those clips of what happened at the Opera House, the failure of the New South Wales police to maintain control. I mean, if it was a protest against the COVID vax, they would have grabbed people and slammed them into the ground. Uh, but it was a protest against Israel and it morphed into a protest against Jews. So that our clips have been seen over 50 million times. Mm. We know people who have cancelled holidays to Australia because now there is an image that there's a radical anti-Semitic group that's out of control. David, I want to show you a photograph. This is from mm -hmm. the ABC's Q&A. Now, on obviously the, the left side of the screen, you can see an ABC guest, and on the right side of the screen, you see the leader of Hamas. What's common there? Well, what's common there is a scarf, that is popular amongst terrorists, that's popular amongst terrorist leaders. You sometimes see them uh, wearing that particular scarf when they're addressing rallies. Uh, and it's got two symbols. Um, one is the Dome of the Rock with, in Arabic, uh, Jerusalem is ours. In other words, Jerusalem shouldn't be, as it has been for the last 3,000 years, the capital of the Jewish nation and now the capital of the modern state of Israel. It should be something else. And on the other side is a map which erases Israel. It's a map of the area, but labelled Philistina, which you know, is Arabic for uh, Palestine. Mm. So it's, uh, it's a very aggressive um, set of messages, uh, as I said, popular amongst terrorist leaders. Well, you know, as I said, people can believe what they want, say what they want, and, and even wear what they want. But it's kind of worth pointing out that that's our national broadcaster and no one seemed to think for one moment that that was worth raising question of. Uh, we are in interesting times. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to have to do and, something and, about it. And to think there was an army of people worried about what the vote uh, of no might mean in the referendum and the damage to Australia's reputation. Well, I'll tell you what damage is far more than that. And that is causes being supported, ironically, by some of the very same people. It's bizarre stuff. Uh, all the very best to you, your community and your safety. And uh, I just wish we could flick a switch and this stuff would stay where it is, which is where it should be. It doesn't need to be here on the streets of Sydney and Melbourne and others. So, David, lovely to speak to you again. Thanks. hundred uh, percent. And thank you so much. Dr. David Adler from the Australian Jewish Association with us on the Alan Jones program across Australia. Are you looking for the best books to buy, but can't be bothered searching for them in increasingly woke bookshops? Visit the ADH website, 
click on the store and check out the latest and some collectible old books by such authors as Brendan O'Neill, Ian Plymer, Jared Henderson, Ian Hancock, and myself, David Flint. These are some of the sharpest writers applying common sense to the great debates of our time, from the gender wars, the attack on religion, and the new racism of the Aboriginal lobby. All the information you need to get through these crazy times at store.adh.tv. G'day, Damien Curry here. Are you having trouble keeping up with the news and the flood of information coming at us all? Want to understand what's going on clearly and simply without any hidden agenda? Well, great news. The Other Side Australia is back every Friday, now right here on ADH-TV. It's your weekly short circuit summary of the best news commentary from Australia and abroad. And join me for the Other Side interviews on Tuesday nights and on demand right here on ADH-TV. Look, I'm grateful to Michael Smith of the Michael Smith News website for sending me this today. Have a look. This popped up at the Bendigo RSL Memorial website. Have a good look at it. Inclusion and respect poppy lapel pin. You can buy it there on the website for $7. A Remembrance Day poppy is what it is. It, it doesn't need this chucked in on it. it. It's, I mean, I actually think it's quite a disrespectful thing. The rainbow issue, it, it has its own place. It has its own location, not on Remembrance Day. It's not an inclusion and respect pin. It's a respect pin. It's not a generic lapel pin. It's a respect pin. And it's certainly not being worn to commemorate serving with pride or incredible pride or diversity or anything like that. It's about people giving their lives for their country in a horrific war. I just do not believe that an RSL club is doing this or is even into this. 
You guys at the Bendigo RSL Club, you're off the rails. Look, I think we've all had experiences like this, particularly lately, the kind of gradual removal of cash from the general economy. And it's happening by stealth. I'll show you something that I took a photo of the other day in the food court near the uh, place that I live. Here we go. Customers, please note, this was a little Thai restaurant. MasterCard 1.6, Visa 1.6, tap and go 1.6. So that's savings account. Amex 2.5. No cash, sorry. There's no way you can pay at this shop, apparently, without paying a surcharge. <laughs> pretty, good, pretty good kind of business model. Um, this came up on 2GB in Sydney the other day. Uh, someone spotted it at a car repair place. Have a look. Sydney City MG. There we have, Visa, MasterCard, credit, debit. The poor cashier, they must have to sit there and ca calculate to figure all this out. Amex, bit cheaper than the Thai restaurant, Union Pay, whatever that is. Cash, right? Cash. 55 bucks. So you spend $500, you're paying 10% tax if you want, in order to pay by cash. So I went looking to try to find the rules. What are the rules? Surely that is unlawful. Interestingly, you ring Consumer Affairs in each state, they say, we're not responsible, ring the ACCC. The ACCC says, nah, all fine. You go to the Reserve Bank website, because they're apparently meant to be policing this. The Reserve Bank, all you can find on the Reserve Bank website is arguments not to have cash in the economy. The Reserve Bank is genuinely and strenuously activist on this. They don't want cash either. And I guess you can get all conspiracy theory about it, and maybe it's not that much of a conspiracy theory, that governments would prefer we not have cash because they know everything that's going on when we get rid of it entirely. I thought to talk about this, we'd have a chat to a man who's in the cash business from the company Next Payments that looks after all the ATMs that the banks no longer provide is Tim Wildash. He's their executive chairman. Tim, thanks for coming to speak to us today. I get the feeling the Reserve Bank is sort of on the push for this. Everything you read they push out publicly wants to imply that cash is done, cash is over. Well, you're right, Jason. Um, I think even Philip Lowe said that in the speech uh, in, in Perth, one of his last speeches. He smiled after a journalist asked a question and said, let's hope cash uh, continues to decline. <laughs> We're on the money there. Wow. Um, do they actually hope that? I mean, is it just a convenience thing from government that they hope it goes, or, or, or do you think it's more sinister than that? Well, from an administrative point of view, there's a lot more money for all of the organisations uh, in digital payments, and there's a lot less uh, workload. So one would assume that they would uh, like to see that happen. I, I spoke about this earlier. There is this sort of practice now where uh, cash is not accepted. Um, I always thought it was unlawful, Apparently it's not, but it, it depends how you read the law, of course. Uh, but there's also the new one that's coming in, that there's a surcharge for paying cash. So just like there's a surcharge for tapping, there's a surcharge for pulling dollars out now. Again, got to be unlawful. Apparently not. No, um, I, th I think the, uh, the law states that they have to offer a surcharge-free uh, method of payment. 
So it's either uh, take your method of payments being tap and go, but <clears throat> charge no surcharge, uh, or you have to have cash available, which is no surcharge. But you're right, there is a fee to get cash in certain instances. If you go to the banks these days, they'll charge you five, six, seven, ten dollars to to do a cash negotiation. And the ATMs uh, more and more often are charging three dollars, two dollars eighty to get cash. It's breathtaking. It's breathtaking that it's just happened. Like a lot of things that are quite profound, they just happen and no one ever talks about it, no one ever debates it. Can, can you just take me back to that? They have to provide a, a method that doesn't have a surcharge. So, you know, we're, we're finding more and more that it doesn't matter where you go, you're going into shops. Are there a selection of words that, that you have to use almost in order to, to, to get through the surcharge? Well, you know, if you're going to tap and go, um, what we recommend is that you place your card in and you don't choose the credit function because in that case you'll only pay a very minimal fee or no fee. But, of course, the, um, the equipment that the banks have out there and the independents have out there channels you through to Visa or MasterCard mm. and uh, they, will, they will charge you the 1.5%, 1.65%. I paid $8.70 last night on a on an account because I uh, I was asleep at the wheel and paid by credit. So uh, it's, a, it's a lot of money. And I think the average household is paying $1,500 a year now for on fees, Jason. Wow. So it's getting to a serious number, isn't it? Well, it, it's, it's a discrete form of tax. I think the scary part, Jason, the scary part here is, is if they didn't have cash in the system to keep them honest, what would they charge? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we yeah. Saw a, yeah. You know, <laughs> It's frightening, really. Uh, the $55 in Sydney a couple of days ago by the MG Garage, they, uh, you couldn't pay by cash, but it was a fi- or if you did pay by cash, sorry, it was a $55 fee. Well, they've, they've withdrawn that now after pressure from the media, but, you know, anything's possible if you haven't got cash to keep them honest. Do, does anyone actually go and investigate this? I mean, can you ring the ACCC or can you ring Fair Trading and say this is going on? Because I, I think invariably... You find yourself at the, the cash register of the, the Thai restaurant and you've got a, a young kid behind the cash register there. He or she, uh, you know, probably dealing with their own language barrier issues anyway. They're not going to know what the rights and the rules are. It almost feels like government has to get out there and actually, you know, swamp us with a, some kind of education campaign. These are the rules because since the COVID period, it's sort of anything goes. Well, the RBA is in charge of the payments network and, uh, of course, we, we think it's their responsibility, but they've been pretty busy lately on other matters, as we'd all know. <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's definitely the RBA, but there is a very interesting group called um, cashwelcome.org and they have a petition out now called uh, change.org. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, forward slash banking and cash guarantee. And I think they've got over 100,000 people in no time at all to demand that cash is accessible mm. to the Australian public. We, we believe, as the public does, that you should have choice. If you want to, if you want to pay by cash, uh, there's lots of advantages with cash. You can budget easier. You're not going to get scammed. Um, you, you're not covered by an outage or a flood or, or a technical error. So there's lots and lots of reasons. But the main one, of course, is as in China now, where 90% of payments are through Alipay and, and WeChat, They've got a social credit system, Jason. 
So you can't buy an airfare or a railway ticket unless you've got 550 points on your social credit. You won't get a date on the Chinese equivalent of Tinder if you don't have a high rating on your social credit, and that comes from your payments and your lifestyle. So it's George Orwell, you know, <laughs> a form of George Orwell all over again. It's, it, it's all crazy here. Times. It's all here. I, I'll never forget uh, being mm. in the Batemans Bay bushfires when for, for two or three days we were essentially mm. trapped in the area. I was there on holidays. And, you know, I, I look at it now and I say, thank God I had 150 bucks in my wallet because it was the only yeah. way you could get petrol. It was the only way you could buy at Woolworths. It was the only way you could do anything at all because the FPOS system was down, the phone system was down, the power was out. And to see this extraordinary situation where there are police officers standing at the door of Woolworths, essentially restraining people from going nuts at the cashiers because they had no money. They had nothing at all to yeah. trade with because all they had was the tap. We're in interesting times and uh, I, I do believe that there needs to be some kind of a campaign to make sure that the public knows their rights because you tell me $1,500, I mean, that's tax at a time when we can't afford it. That is extra tax. Great talking to you and thanks for, uh, for I guess, keeping it alive. We, we fight very hard every day, Jason, and we'll support cash as long as uh, we can breathe. But in 1967, it was the inception of credit cards. And the press said at that time, I've got some of the articles, uh, cash will be gone within three years. So <laughs> yes. 1967. Yeah, good the luck. CBA has revised their cashless date on many occasions in their uh, media online, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think they said it five years ago, three, two, and last year. But we're still, we're still there. Cash is 30 million transactions a month. It's not going anywhere. And thankfully that. Tim, nice to talk to you. Thanks so much. All the best, Jason. Thank you. Thank you. Tim Wildash, the executive chairman of Next Payments, is a private ATM operator that has to exist because the banks are pulling the ATMs out as well. Crazy times across Australia. This is The Alan Jones Show. We had an enormous response to our discussion yesterday on the education crisis that Australia is facing. I, I called it, because the technical phrase is, a crisis of adult authority, but it's just flat-out lack of discipline a lack of discipline in the classroom, and it's not getting any better. As a nation, Australia is drastically falling behind in the classroom. And then you've got behavioural issues that puts this OECD in some really shocking position down the bottom of the list. And it's one of these issues that no one in the political class really wants to deal with. The schooling system has rot in it, and everybody knows it. Now, I showed you this yesterday. This is Mr Cable a teacher in the Hunter Valley who was attacked in a classroom, abused, pushed. He has a table tossed towards him. He's called everything, and there he is. There's his one way of trying to tame things down. He grabs one of the kids. Some little turd films it. It's all over the internet. He's charged. He's charged with an offence. Michael Cable has spent months and thousands of dollars fighting this in the courts. It had to go to the district court on appeal. And luckily, a judge saw it for what it was. He was protecting himself. And you look at it and you say, who the hell would want to be a teacher? There is no greater issue, I think, facing us as a community right now than what we are preparing to dump on the world once kids like that end up in their schooling. 
Let's talk to education expert, Dr. Kevin Donnelly. I've spoken to Kevin for many, many years on radio. He is an author, an educator, a commentator. He is a straight shooter. He's a senior fellow at the Australian Catholic University and an expert in this field. Nice to see you again, Kevin. G'day. Always my pleasure. I look at the case with Mr. Cable, and we're not just going to make it about him, but, you know, the response back <clears throat> from people was that he is a hero for taking on these kids, not, not, a, not an accused, a hero. And yet he is taken through the system, he's charged, he'll probably never work in the game again, and all for doing probably what their parents should have done. You're dead right. And, uh, I mean, I wrote about this a couple of years ago. When you look at discipline or the lack of discipline in the classroom, and you're quite right to mention the OECD research shows uh, we have among the most disruptive and badly behaved students across the OECD. But it's the elephant in the room that politicians ignore. Uh, education departments don't do anything about it. And I've spoken to teachers, and the problem there is that if there's a fight in the classroom or in, in the uh, school ground, if a teacher interferes, and pushes a kid or grabs a kid, the teacher is the one who often gets blamed or is threatened with uh, legal action. And uh, to that extent, some teachers now just stand back, don't get involved. Let it happen. And uh, that's what it's come to. It doesn't make sense. I told a story the other day on radio where there was a friend of mine who was a headmaster for many, many years in the country. He had uh, such success in his country town, which had a lot of underprivileged kids, a lot of Aboriginal kids, that the education department said, we'd like you to take on one of our really tough schools in the city. So he was brought down and put into one on the outskirts of Sydney. You can kind of guess the location. He's there for two years and quits. Just uh, it's impossible. It's impossible. He'd had more complaints about his handling of the kids, his dealing with the parents, his dealing with the teachers. He'd had more complaints in that school in two years than he had seen in 20 years in the profession. And all the people that were there for him to encourage him to come south and take up this job were nowhere for him when he took up the job and tried to do what they asked him to do, bring some discipline back to the classroom. There's the message. Yeah, you're dead right again, and uh, it's a very complicated issue. When I went to school many years ago, teachers were authority figures, and the classroom, were, uh, there was a lot of structure, a lot of discipline. Uh, there were clear rules about behaviour, what was accepted, what wasn't, and uh, students knew that if they misbehaved, there'd be consequences. Now, unfortunately, we've lost that over the last 20, 30 years, Teachers have been told, especially in primary school, that they should be their students' friend. Teachers are called facilitators, guides by the side. You've got this idea now that teachers are not strict, they're not authority figures, and the problem there is that kids will often pick that up. And it's interesting, if you look at the schools in England and America, especially in disadvantaged areas, the schools like the Michaelia School in London that are the most effective have a no excuses policy when it comes to discipline. Students have to be well dressed, they have to line up outside the room, they have to call the teacher by their surname, there are consequences 
for misbehaviour. We need to get back to that idea of teachers being strong authority figures and to have a classroom where there's order and discipline and there are consequences for being badly behaved. I look at these numbers and and I kind of had to put my glasses on to read the size of it. $662 billion that Australia has spent, $662 billion towards school and education funding since NAPLAN came in 15 years ago. Um, $72 billion in the last year alone has been spent on schooling. So it's not the money argument. And the unions always go on about money, need more money, need more expenditure, need more wages. Wages for teachers are great, I think. Um, Expenditure in school, those numbers are astronomical. You look at it and you think, okay, it's just simple stuff, this. It's simple stuff. It's telling them it's, it's the parent body and, and the government and society telling teachers discipline, discipline. We will back you. And, and then at the same time, it's, it's telling the parents that don't think you can come running when it's something you don't like because you've already signed on to this. You're part of this too. Parents have a, 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 well, a role to play. I've always argued parents are their children's primary educators mm-hmm. and moral guardians. I mean, parents are responsible from a very early age teaching their children what is right and wrong, what is acceptable, unacceptable. But I've heard stories, uh, again, in primary school, uh, happens in secondary school as well, where a teacher might discipline a student And this was occurring, uh, I know New South Wales has changed, they're not allowing mobile phones, but when students had a mobile phone, often they'd phone the parents at recess or lunchtime. The parents would come up to school and (laughs) complain to the principal or the school leader, oh, a teacher has told my kid not to do A, B or C. So parents are actually causing the problem as well because... uh, you know, I've seen examples we all have where parents have been with their kids in, in the supermarket. The kid uh, cries or jumps up and down and parents have no control. Uh, so parents really have to stand up here and take responsibility as well. You often talk about the sort of Marxism now that is in, in developed education and, and that's what we teach them. Has that same thing also blurred into how we teach them? Are, are, are the two overlapping now? They are, and that's a very good question. Uh, there's an Italian uh, academic, Augusto Del Noce, and I wrote an article uh, for the Daily Telegraph about this earlier in the year. And what Del Noce argues is that uh, beginning in the 1920s, 1930s, what he calls cultural Marxism, has been very influential in uh, universities in particular and teacher training, I'd argue, has been uh, very much impacted by this. But what it means is that uh, often you have this kind of idea, which I suppose goes back to socialism, this kind of community where everybody's equal, everybody's, uh, you know, collaborative, everybody's working together, this idea that you don't have a hierarchy You don't have somebody who's the centre of attention, the authority figure. I mean, I've heard from one or two teachers who, uh, one in particular, had their desk at the front of the room, had the students lined up 
in their chairs and tables. And that teacher was told to get rid of the desk at the front because <laughs> that was too authoritarian. And somehow that meant that uh, the kids weren't learning. The opposite is the case, as I mentioned before. So it does go back to this broader cultural change. And I think cultural Marxism uh, has a lot to do with it. It, it's it's crazy stuff. I mean, I, I listened to it and you probably heard me sort of chuckling at it. I, I'm, I'm laughing because I guess there's no other emotion. The anger one can't come out. It's, it, is, it is crazy times. Can we fix it? You know, it, can this yeah. all be reversed, I guess, is the question. Oh, you, you're dead right. I mean, I was talking to Sarah Henderson, who's the Federal Shadow Education Minister, and we were talking about this Michaelia School in London, also what they call the No Excuses Schools in America, and these are charter schools where there's greater community control. They've got rid of the teacher union, the bureaucracy. Parents have greater control. Teachers have greater control. But what happens there is that if you get that what I call subsidiarity, if you get the community involved in the school, if you give them the power to hire teachers, to get rid of the dud teachers, to really look at the curriculum in terms of what the community sees is most important, if you get the community and the parents on side and you're able to employ good teachers who are willing to work for that, uh, what the school is trying to achieve, you can turn things around. And I know the Michaelia School in London and the other schools in, in America I've mentioned, they have waiting lists because parents soon know about them and realise that these are schools that are turning it around and achieving a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of hope this movement comes along here because, I, you know, I've chosen to put my boys, I have three of them, in private education and, you know, you know, there's always a sector of the community that rolls their eyes at that and it's sort of like it's, it's, it's sort of like saying, you know, I, I've bought a flash car yeah. or something like that. It's a, it's a choice we've made as a family. Or, or, or you voted no in the referendum. I voted no in the referendum, yeah. Well, they, they were right on that front. But I, I kind of think about it all the time that, that why are we at this school? There's a lot of reasons we're at this school, but one of the reasons we're at this school is because we're trying to eliminate all of this crap out of their lives. Um, and then at the same time, the schools battle the bureaucracy that want to know why this stuff's not in there. The bureaucracy actually yeah. has this attitude that it has to hold these schools and audit them for all the stuff that the parents are paying the private school not to put in. The bureaucracy wants to push back in. It is really bizarre. It is, and uh, that, that's why I mentioned this idea of subsidiarity, of giving parents greater control. But... Uh, it, it, it's fascinating. I think parents are beginning to understand. I organised a recent seminar at Campion College in Sydney. We had over 70, 80 parents and teachers from around Australia, everywhere from Perth to uh, Brisbane to, to Adelaide to Melbourne, Sydney, to Wagga Wagga to Woomba. What these parents are doing, because they've become unhappy about uh, often the government, local government school that doesn't have the discipline, doesn't have an academic curriculum that's rigorous, they're actually starting their own schools and that's increasingly happening, mm. as I said, around Australia. Uh, and, and this idea 
it's very, well, it's growing in England and America. I think it's coming here as well, that parents understand enough is enough and our children are so important, we'll have to start our own school. Yeah, well, you often hear, you know, older folks like us talking about not in my day. I, I, I wonder if my kids will one day say that stuff didn't happen back in my day. I really do wonder. Hey, nice to talk to you, Kevin. It's, it's always such an important topic and it's about the future of the country. And good on you for speaking up on that front. All the best. Thank you very much. Dr Kevin Donnelly across Australia, the Alan Jones Program. Well, that's our program for tonight. Thank you for your company across the week. And Alan will be back with you end of next week. So another week to go. If you've got any comments on the program, we'd like to hear from you. Uh, the usual way, email Alan Jones at ADHTV. You can tell him how much you love me or hate me. You can tell him anything you like because I don't get to see any of the emails. You can say what you wish. That's the world we're in. Australia's home of common sense, ADHTV. Alan Jones program, Jason Morrison is my, my name. Stick around, we have for you up next the week in 60 minutes with The Spectator and Alexandra is in the wings to bring you more. Thanks for your company, catch you soon.